Thank you for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. I'm so glad that you've joined us. It's our prayer that this will lift your heart and encourage you, set your eyes more fully on Jesus as we open God's word together. You can join us anytime in person or online in our live stream. You can find that at redemptionhilldc.org. If you're not in D.C., we encourage you to get involved in a local church where you live for the sake of encouragement and accountability in a local body, but we're also glad to have you join us and, and walk through this study with us. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill, you can do so at our website, again, redemptionhilldc.org. Thank you. Good morning. I hope your Thanksgiving with family or friends or whomever was drama-free. And if it wasn't, it's good to be at church, right? Maybe repent of things that we said. That was a little too close to home for some of you. I see you burying your head in your hands. Um, If you have a Bible, let's open God's Word together to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Did you know that um, expressing thankfulness is a spiritual discipline. Expressing thankfulness is something that, it's an act that feeds our souls. It's something we do that that cultivates an awareness inside of us. It heightens our senses to recognize God's blessings. It heightens our senses to recognize that God's grace is active in our lives. It's an act that opens us a little bit. My entire life, I've had bad posture. I have rounded shoulders. And so there are times, maybe because of, of you know, my whole life being on a computer, um, playing games when I was growing up, uh, I walk around like a flippin' hunchback. And I'll notice it sometimes that I have bad posture, and it takes effort for me to open myself up. But when I do, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can breathe. Oh my gosh, I'm two inches taller. And like, I, I stop being the hunchback of Notre Dame and become something functional in society. Thankfulness is, is something that's good for our spiritual posture. It's really easy to uh, acknowledge and complain when things are hard or even about things that are objectively bad. To acknowledge them and go, man, I don't like that this is going on. And it's something that turns our souls inward. It turns us inward. But what God has done, he's given us this gift of thankfulness, of expressing gratitude. And it's something that for us is a spiritual discipline. It's part of our own spiritual formation that opens us up to see God for who he is and experience God in the world more clearly. And not only is it a spiritual discipline, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says that giving thanks in all circumstances is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. That means that it's part of God's divine good for us to give thanks It makes us more of who we are supposed to be. And so what I want to do this morning as we come to God's word together is practice thankfulness. And there's one thing that sticks out in my mind as evidence of God's work at this church right now that I think is worth our awareness and our gratitude to God. And it was alluded to in the announcements. It's the potential of new elders, Whenever God raises up godly leaders in a local church, whenever God raises up shepherds who will serve in his church, our souls should be stirred with thankfulness because it's evidence of God's care. It's evidence of God's radical grace at work. I mean, is it not amazing that God takes 
men who are sinful and debased and not only redeems them by the blood of Jesus shed upon the cross, but he transforms them and continues to transform them by his grace, repurposes them by the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, and then sets them in place to serve for the spiritual health of other people. And so even before we begin, as we prepare our hearts to come to God's word, we want to praise God for this. And we also want to thank God that what we're about to read in the Bible is actually in the Bible. That here we have a template, a guideline for the type of leaders that God chooses, the type of leaders that God wants leading his church. And he set up some qualifications so that godly leaders are appointed and not just people are thrown into positions. And so uh, here's a brief outline of where we're gonna go today as we kind of slowly and systematically walk through this text together. Um, We're gonna look at the ecclesiastical need. I just wanted to impress you. The need in the church is what that means. The need in the church for godly leaders, for shepherds. Then we're gonna look at the distinctives of qualified godly shepherds. We'll then pause and look at the source of the empowerment for every godly leader. And then, as we should, anytime we come to God's word, we're not coming to amass knowledge. We're coming to have an encounter with God and respond to that encounter. So we want, we want to see, God, what do you call us to do in response to this wonderful, glorious, thank-filling truth that we find in your word? So that's our roadmap. We will, you'll be able to see as we go along Uh, where we're at if I lose you. Uh, It's not my aim, but it happens. So if you have your Bible, Titus chapter one, I'm gonna be reading from the New American Standard Bible 2020 this morning, um, starting in verse five. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is beyond reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of indecent behavior or rebellion. For the overseer must be beyond reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not overindulging in wine, not a bully, not greedy for money, but hospitable, loving what is good, self-controlled, righteous, holy, disciplined holding firmly the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. Father, as we unpack your word to us this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts. God, my prayer this week is I have been sitting with this as somebody you have called and placed to be uh, an elder, a shepherd, a leader in a local church. God, would you soak my heart with the truth of this word? Would you continue to mold and transform my own character so that I mirror Jesus? And what would you do that for every one of us in here? Would you work the traits that we just read through, not only into the current elders and shepherds and leaders of this church, but into each person? Jesus, may we encounter your beauty and your majesty, and may we be stirred to wonder at you as the head of the church this morning, because all of this, God, is about you, Jesus, and for you, Jesus, and to you, 
And so Holy Spirit, anoint my speech now so that Jesus receives the glory. In his name we pray, amen. So the ecclesiastical need for elders or pastors, for shepherds, is seen in verse five. Paul, who's writing this letter to Titus, Titus is like Timothy, he's Paul's son in the faith. He's been left behind at Crete, which is an island in the Black Sea, and um, he's there because Paul has planted churches and says, I need a representative. I need you to put in place some things that have been lacking. So what you see here in the wording, he says, for this reason I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains. The New King James says what is lacking, and do this by appointing elders in every city. Now, that phrase, set in order, is really intriguing to me. Because Paul uses an ancient medical term. It means to set a broken limb or like straightening out crooked limbs. If you've seen Forrest Gump, it's the Forrest Gump leg braces. He says, Titus, I've left you here so that you can heal what's been, what's been broken or so that you can make straight what is crooked. This is kind of bizarre. The letter to Titus starts with an acknowledgement by the Apostle Paul that there's something broken. There's some things growing in unhealth in the church in Crete, and there's, these things need attention and they need healing. And I gotta tell you, this is really refreshing for me, that this is how Paul starts, because in my experience, some leaders operate from this delusional posture that everything's great, that nothing is broken or needs to be fixed in what they've built or what they're leading. But Paul starts with this, abs- this, this absolute willingness to go, no, some, some things are messed up and we need to invite God in. See, whenever there's an absence of willingness to acknowledge areas of unhealth, we're purposely keeping God at bay. We're preventing God from entering into the mess to bring healing, to bring order, to bring restoration. But Paul, who's the missionary who planted the churches on the island of Crete, starts by saying, hey, God did a great work, but man, some things have gone off the rails. There's some unhealth that's festering. We, we need God to intervene so that the people can flourish in spiritual health. Now, as a brief aside, I'm convinced that, th- that this is a sign of a good leader. There's someone who's willing to acknowledge when things are lacking or things are unhealthy. And then they take practical steps to invite God into the mess, to invite God's word and God's ways in to bring healing. And it's in this opening salvo of of Paul's uh, showcasing the ecclesiastical need for leaders that we learn something really important about God himself, about Jesus, who's the head of the church. We learn that he willfully and willingly chooses to involve himself in the messiness and the brokenness of humanity willfully and willingly chooses to involve himself in the messiness and brokenness of the church. And one of the mechanisms that, uh, the mechanisms of grace that Jesus employs in his church, something that he ushers in to bring healing and health is the raising up of leaders, elders and pastors, shepherds to care for his people. Now, those three terms are are used synonymously here. I'm gonna keep coming back to the language of shepherd because that's a personal favorite. And really, in the truest sense, that's what elders and pastors do. We're, We're here to shepherd people toward health, toward the following and discipleship, apprenticeship of Jesus. 
So if you come to me, I shouldn't be like, yeah, follow me because I'm, I'm great. You should come to me and I go, hey, let's follow Jesus because he's great. Follow me as I follow Christ. I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the, the, the right things to say, but I can take your hand and put it in the hand of Jesus and we can walk together and be changed and transformed by him. The question then is, okay, Jesus, that's amazing that you have set up order, that you, you install and appoint and ordain healthy leaders for the health of your church, of your body, but what are these characteristics? Who, who are these men that you raise up? Now, I want to clarify something. Um, I keep saying men because this is the one office that's reserved for men in the church, it's not that God is sexist. It's not that we are sexist. We understand that God is a God of order, and God has divined, designed his church, excuse me, so that men function in this capacity of elder or overseers, the primary shepherds of the church. But when you read in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, even in Ephesians 4, and talks about the, the gifting that God gives to his people, the gifts aren't um, biased based off of gender. The gifts are for all, men and women, so men and women can lead in a various host of, of ways. Women can and should lead in various ministry forms, can and should proclaim and preach the word of God in various forms according to gift and call and fit. But this is the office that God has reserved primarily for not just men, but qualified men. So what are these distinctives that God has laid out for qualified godly shepherds? Well, what immediately follows the instruction to appoint elders is not a job description. It's a character description. Men who are visible witnesses, credible witnesses to the reality of the gospel in their homes, to the reality of the gospel in their homes and their churches, the city and the culture. See, Paul doesn't say, Titus, I want you to go and, and, and find the most gifted guys that you can. Go look for people who have natural charisma and, and leadership ability. Go look for people who are terrific orators. What God instead looks for in leaders and what God wants the church to recognize in leaders is character. You see, some of the distinctives that we see will be on the screen that the primary qualifier for shepherd leadership in the church is a character that's patterned after the good shepherd Jesus himself. Now, as we read through verses six through nine, depending on how you count it, there are either 12 or 15 character traits, qualifications that are listed. But in this whole list, only one of them deals with competency or gifting. All the rest are about character. And here's what that tells us. God always chooses character over gifting when it comes to leadership. Always. God never values gifting or even competency over character. And it's important to unambiguously state that because we often value, even in the church, things like charisma over character. Like if someone is really gifted and can get things done, then sure, we'll, we'll turn a blind eye to the fact that they have immorality in their life because they're really good at what they do. I mean, yeah, sure, they yell at their wife and their kids and they're kind of a terrible person at home, but when they open the word on Sunday, I've never seen those things before. 
And we compromise character for the name of charisma or gifting. We also do this with things like competency, where we use competency as the predominant qualifier for leadership. Now listen, this is going to upset some of you, not my aim, but let's just come to, to see what God's word says and, and align ourselves with that. We can't just automatically conclude that if someone has a seminary degree, then they're ready to lead. I'm not against seminary. It is, a, it is and can be a great and valuable tool in the life of somebody who's learning and wanting to be in vocational ministry. But going to seminary doesn't qualify someone for this form of leadership. Being skilled in oratory or even in theology doesn't necessarily qualify someone for this form of leadership. Maybe according to some of our preferences, but not God's standards. So what are these characteristics that we're talking about? What has God outlined for us? Well, I wanna walk through them together. Some of these are pretty straightforward, they mean what they mean, but others of them, they're words that are pregnant with meaning that are more than a definition, they're a way of life, they're a character trait that we're to see and identify and praise God for when we see it in godly leaders and encourage and pray into their lives when we don't see it. So start in verse six. He starts by saying, this man should be beyond reproach. Your translation might have the word blameless. Blameless does not mean perfection. It doesn't say they're faultless or flawless. It's the idea that this guy isn't a car wreck. Like his life isn't a car crash that's become a spectacle that people drive by and start rubbernecking and go, oh my gosh, do you, do you see like how this guy's life has just defamed Jesus? If that's what Jesus is like, I'm good. It's not that these men are without sin, but that these men live a life that practice repentance. What makes David a man after God's own heart was not his perfection, but was his willingness to run after the heart of God after every sin and mess up and failure because he understood that his righteousness was deficient and he needed the righteousness of another. And so he pressed in and said, God, I've fallen and failed again, and he repented. And every time God met him with grace and transformation. We read that he should be the husband of one wife. Literally, this reads like this. He should be a one-woman man. Now, a wooden reading of this, a wooden application of this, uh, concludes many people to believe that an elder must have a wife. But that's not what it means. Because if it meant that, then Jesus and Paul couldn't be elders because neither of them had wives. Marriage here is assumed, it's not commanded. So if he's married... Man, he's a man who loves and is faithful to his wife. That you can see that, not just in how he treats her, but in how she responds to him. Is she growing and flourishing as a person as a result of her husband's love and care and nurture over her? And if he has children, is he shepherding his children to Jesus with the way that he loves them and leads them and prays over them and provides for them? Not are the children perfect, but is he faithful? Now the reason why the family life is mentioned first is because that's the first and primary ministry of any man in ministry. It's, it's not the church first, it's the family first. 
my first experience in uh, pastoral ministry was uh, in California years ago. And it was a, God's good, it was a terrific experience <laughs> for what I learned. Um, I, was, I was taught, uh, and my wife was taught as well, that it goes, uh, Jesus, the church, your family. That's the most backwards thing in the world. And I was young at the time, I was like 20, 21 when I got into full-time ministry, and so uh, I, I was too young to fully like grow into speaking against that with God's word, but the older I got, the more I was like, this is crazy. And so I started to push back, and I remember one of the times my wife had a doctor's appointment and I went with her to it, and the pastor pulled me aside and, and he was like, hey, um, there are gonna be thousands of doctor's appointments, you need to be here for meetings like this. And I was like, oh, no, no. And like something woke up in me, and I was like, have you ever read? Like this voice came out. <laughs> it was awesome. And ever since then, I have not been the same. But I, I've learned this, that like even when you go back to, to Genesis and the creation of all things, man is made first for God, and then he's brought a helpmate. And after the helpmate, he's then given his work to do. He's given his mission, his purpose, his calling in the world. The primary ministry of every elder is their family because if they can't faithfully care for and provide for the spiritual needs of their family, how are they gonna do it for God's family? Verse seven, it continues and says, again, it's reiterated, he should be beyond reproach. He should be blameless. But here we get a new reasoning because he's God's steward. Stewardship applies to a church, when it's applied to church leaders, means that the church doesn't belong to any of the elders or pastors. I know we say that colloquially a lot. Like this is, this is Bill's church, or this is Eric's church, or this is so-and-so's church, this is my church. It's not ours. This church belongs to Jesus. The capital C church, the global church, belongs to Jesus. The responsibility that's been entrusted to pastors and elders is to faithfully steward the church first as people and then as an organization to follow Jesus. It's not about us. It's not about who we are or our own personality or identity being woven in. We should be reflecting the identity of Jesus, the, the chief shepherd. Now, what's really fun, as, the, as he goes on in this list, Paul all of a sudden lists um, a list of vices that, that these men should kill in their lives and a list of virtues that they should cultivate. And the vices are all like, not this, not this, not this. He starts, look at it, it says, these men, a, a, an elder, a shepherd in God's church, should not be self-willed. Some synonyms of self-willed. Arrogant, stubborn, self-pleasing, self-focused. Those are traits that are incompatible with somebody that God sets up to lead his church and lead other people to Jesus. Really, like what this is saying is that there's no room in pastoral ministry for guys who like to be in the limelight, who like their own voice and their own influence. That ain't the kind of leader that God chooses. In fact, this is a personal preference. Uh, I'm convinced that Every leader should be a servant leader because Jesus is the ultimate example of being a servant leader and we're to emulate Jesus. 
Jesus wasn't about celebrity culture. He wasn't about uh, putting himself out there and being known. There are multiple times where he did a great work and then said, don't tell anybody, the time's not yet, and he would retreat. Jesus' ministry was about serving people. And I think as we step into ministry spaces, as God may be stirring in you to be a future leader in a church someday, a deacon in the church, an elder or shepherd or something in the church, what he wants for you is a character that's patterned after Jesus, not after what we see currently in our culture, where celebrity is celebrated and effectiveness is measured by how many followers you have or how many likes you have or how many people hear your voice and think you're great. He's not self-willed. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a bitter man is what that means. Effectively, let's put a positive spin, he's emotionally healthy. Emotional health is something we don't talk enough about inside of church spaces, but it's one thing to have a high IQ and a very low EQ, but I, I think we need to cultivate in each other relationally as we apply God's word to each other. Man, how, how we can have a, a healthier emotional quotient with one another. That we can be emotionally healthy to identify and express what we're feeling, what we're seeing, and what God's doing in the world and how we're navigating that. This is someone who is not overindulgent in wine. We can just say, oh, he doesn't get drunk. Some people build a whole um, doctrine over he has to be a teetotaler on this. Th- that's a reach, and I'm not gonna do that, okay? It just clearly says not overindulging. Basically, he has a healthy relationship with food and drink. He's not someone who's okay getting reckless in the name of personal freedoms. That, that doesn't b- benefit God's people, and it doesn't befit the station of somebody who's here for the health and flourishing of others. He's not a bully. He's someone who works to have a healthy relationship with people. He endeavors to be kind. He endeavors to be patient. And he's not greedy for money. Basically, this means that he's a man of healthy desires, a man of a content lifestyle, and a man of a generous heart. Miserly ministers are the worst form of people. And what people experience from miserly ministers is that that's the form of God that they're encountering. That's the picture of how God serves us with very little generosity, with very stingy means, but God is extravagant. God is generous. So those are the the vices that are to be killed actively and continually in the life of God's leaders, but then we get to the, the virtues to cultivate. We see there in verse eight that he should be hospitable. Now there's the the colloquial understanding of this. We have hospitality is one of the core values of this church and there's a very cultural cultural centric meaning to this. Um, But I like how Alistair Begg uh, defines this, articulates what it means to be hospitable. He simply said, there's something about the hospital in the man. Different quote, I'm quoting him later too. There's something in the hospital about the man. There's something in the man that resembles physician's care, something that resembles a shepherd's heart. That's what you want in a a shepherd, in a leader. Somebody who's hospitable, somebody who is a lover of what is good. Literally, that means he's devoted to the good of other people. 
He doesn't just talk about it, but he lives into the good of other people in perceptible ways. If he himself is not good at actively living into it, then he's good at devising ways for other people to actively live into it. He's self-controlled, or your version might say sober-minded. It's the kind of sobriety that's found in a cockpit when something goes wrong. This is very Sully Sullivan when the birds hit the plane. He doesn't scheme to try to mitigate damage when the thrusters fail, but he walks through the paces and trusts himself to the Lord and goes, all right, we got this. He's a man who's righteous or just. Not just positionally righteous because he's in Christ, although that is true, but he is living out a practical righteousness and justice by publicly advocating for and is an accomplice in civil righteousness and acts of justice in his community. Again, the tinge of the word is that this trait is part of the man's character, so it's seen in tangible action. It's not merely talked about. He's holy. That is, his life is, is lived according to who God is and what God is doing. He's letting his character be shaped by God's active work in his life. I had a pastor tell me once, Eric, a, a man who spends time in the presence of God is always able to present God to people. That's what it means to be holy. Whenever any elder or pastor comes to, to proclaim God's word to you, it should seem and feel as if we've just come from the very presence of God ourselves because we've been sitting with him and saying, God, what is your word for your people? What is your word for me? And then it says he's disciplined. So the root word of that word disciplined is disciple. What underpins the character of a godly leader is that they are disciple of Jesus who is disciplined in following Jesus. Disciplined in handling the word of God, disciplined in service, disciplined in prayer. But as I just alluded to, he's disciplined in sitting with God listening to God and then responding to God in faith. And all of that leads to this point in verse nine, where it says that the shepherd should be one who holds firm to the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching of Christ so that he'll be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it. The paramount call of elders and pastors is that they are able to give them they are to give themselves excuse me to knowing and growing in scripture so that they can build up believers and bring others to the reality of Jesus or to put it another way to be shepherds who contend to the sheep and drive away wolves I heard one pastor talk about the ministry of verse nine like this. He said the, the, the crook that the great shepherd has provided to his under shepherds is the crook of his word. Paramount to being a, an elder and a shepherd is being able to handle, rightly handle the word of God and apply it to the lives of people to build up the believer and bring conviction to the non-believer and, and refute the, the, the erratic claims of non-believers. 
So practically what this means is that anytime you come to one of the elders for counsel or advice or questions, that the elder's response should always be to point you to scripture and say, well, let's see what God's word has to say then. Let's see what God's word says. The word of God, when it is read, when it is taught, when it is received, when it is meditated upon, when it is obeyed, is central to the health of any church. It is central to the health of any Christian. And here's how I know that. That word sound, as it's used in verse nine, is where we get our English word. In, 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 in Greek, the word that's used is where we get our English word for the word hygiene. So three times in this whole narrative, we've been given three medical terms. He says in verse five, I left you there to set in order, to bring healing to those things that are broken or out of joint. He says in verse eight, you as the elders should be hospitable. There should be something in the hospital about your person and your character as you lead God's people. And then he says, you should handle God's word in a way that is for the, the good hygiene or spiritual health of the people. You see, church, sound doctrine is good spiritual hygiene. Sound doctrine is Jesus-centered teachings that promote spiritual health and growth of the hearers. I love that the role of an elder, the call of an elder, that starts in verse five and is woven through this whole, uh, this, this whole description starts and ends with spiritual care, with healing and in health. That's God's purpose for appointing qualified elders of Christ-like character in his church, to help the body function in health and not in dysfunction. So you think of it this way, elders are under shepherds to Jesus who is the great shepherd. We are physicians assistants to Jesus who is the great physician. There should be something of the hospital in our character. Now, if we know each other and <clears throat> to the point where we've talked about, excuse me, uh, if we know each other well enough to the point where we've talked about the church, you know that I'm fond of saying that above all things, a church should be like a hospital. The church is and should be a, a hospital for the hurting and the broken. The church, this church, should be a place where Anyone can come and find healing in the person of Jesus, in the presence and ministry of the Holy Spirit, in the pages of Scripture, and in radical grace being applied to and from each other. And if the church is indeed a hospital, then it should be a teaching hospital where discipleship is prioritized and opportunities for ministry are regularly provided so that people can practice their spiritual gifts for the glory of God. All of this is attributed to God's care for his church. And he has placed this order in place, placed men like this in place so that we would flourish in health. And these are the distinctives of the man that God chooses. But oftentimes, as I've been tasked in the past and in the present with investing in young men or older men who feel called to pastoral ministry, the question I'm usually asked is, man, how is this character even possible? Like, how, how does one become this type of person? Now is what I want to quote Alistair Begg that you saw teased earlier. He said, 
it would be wrong for us to think that just getting the structure right is the answer, because it isn't. You could have bad structure with spirit-filled people and it would be better than good structure with people who were not living in obedience to God's word and filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, when we talk about the source of empowerment for every shepherd, we're saying that becoming these people of character is not disconnected from the power of God. It's not disconnected from abiding in Jesus and being filled with the Spirit of God. Very simply, let me say it this way. You can't do God things apart from God's power. And you shouldn't trust a leader who tries. The source of all godliness is God. Godly leaders are reliant upon the Holy Spirit. Godly leaders are those who abide in Jesus, who who read the promise of Jesus in John 15, where Jesus says, if you abide in me, not only will Jesus sanctify you and change you into who he wants you to be, he will make you fruitful in life and in ministry. He will produce these types of character traits in your life and through your life for the glory of God the Father. The source of empowerment is not charisma or, character or, or gifting or competency. The source of empowerment is abiding in Jesus, is being filled with and relying upon the power of the Holy Spirit because we cannot do God things apart from God's power. So Eric, all that's cool, but what the heck do we do with this? I wanna get to our response. I have three, maybe four. We'll see how this goes. First, let's start here. Start practicing thankfulness. Specifically, practice thankfulness to God for exercising his care over his church in this way. This is a weird thing to say because I'm an elder and a pastor at this church and it kind of sounds like I'm saying, thank God for me. It's not what I'm doing. But how often do we overlook the, the, the means of grace and the systems that God has set up that are for our flourishing and we just take them for granted. And as I alluded to in the beginning, we walk around with a joyless Christianity that's hunched over and not opened up to the things of God because we're not walking in gratitude and awareness of what God's doing. Listen, church, good elders, good pastors, good leaders are all a gift from God to his church. They are tangible examples of the power of his grace. So don't sleep on God's goodness. Be intentional about discussing it with someone else. That's a form of spiritual care. That's a form of spiritual formation. Secondly, man, pray. Pray for your elders. Pray over your elders. Pray with your elders. Even your prospective elders. Pray these characteristics to become traits in our lives, in their lives. Pray that above all else, we would follow and imitate and model the example of Jesus, that we'd be faithful stewards of what he wants for his church, not self-willed people who are trying to inject what we want. Pray that Bill, myself, Chris, Caleb, Kang, Ollie, that we would elder faithfully according to scripture by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, encourage your leaders in their calling as they shepherd you. 
Encourage these qualities in our lives. Speak the truth of God's word to us and over us. Or if you move on to another church, to them and over them. Remind them of who they are and who they've been called by God to be. And hold them, hold us accountable to what scripture declares. And if you've done all that, and whether it's at this church or another church down the road, if you've done all of this and there's no perceptible godly character from your leadership that you can see, or you have trust that's been irreparably broken, then maybe it might be time for you to go. It might be time for you to go submit yourself to someone who's the kind of leader who will lead you and invest in you and help you flourish in spiritual health. And that's okay. See, there's a, great, there's a great truth inside of a quote that you've probably heard before. The quote is, as go the leaders, so goes the church. Which means you can tell a lot about what a church is by looking at its leaders. Man, I just want to be about Jesus. I'm not really interested in much else. I'm honestly a really boring person, if you get to know me. But I just want to be about Jesus. And I want to get to know you, and I want you to follow me and I want us to be about Jesus together. I don't really care about institutions or affiliations, I'm just not into it, but I am about Jesus. And my hope is that we as a people would be about him. Because Colossians 1 verse 18 tells us that Jesus is the head of the church, which means that he is the senior pastor of the church, of this church. He's the founder, he's the source, it is all about him and to him and for him. And in his wisdom as the chief shepherd and senior pastor, he's appointed under shepherds, elders and leaders to faithfully pastor people into health, to cultivate an ecosystem of discipleship. And so what I wanna do is, as we close, close with thankfulness stirring in our own hearts that in response to the foresight of Jesus to set up leaders in the church for our healing and health, for the care that he exhibits over and to his people, through his people, for the ministry of his word that speaks and cuts through the chaos and the noise, for the ministry of his spirit that brings peace and calms the storms, for all of that we are grateful and we are thankful, God, that you do this. And in response, we say, to him be glory and honor and dominion and praise forever and ever. Amen. It's God's word to us today, and it's good. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you have designed a gospel community to function in this way that you are at work in the lives of people, in systems and in structures, in ways that maybe we walked into this place unaware of, but we, we leave now not just educated and informed, but buoyed by, our souls stirred by. God, would you continue to call and raise up godly leaders in this place? We pray for the elders and the, the pastors and the shepherds and leaders who exist in this space, Lord, that you would conform our character, every one of our characters, to that of Jesus. 
that you would work Christ-like character into us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would begin to see in new and fresh ways health and healing take place in the body here. God, moment of honesty, Lord, there are things like Paul, I look at even in our own church and I see and I'm like, it's, some stuff's broken. Some stuff is just needs to be healed. Some stuff is out of order or lacking. God, I thank you that you also see it and you enter into that mess with us. You're not overwhelmed by it. So God, would you come in and bring healing and wholeness to what is broken and damaged, what is incomplete, for the sake and for the glory and for the name and fame of Jesus. We ask and pray these things. Amen.